You'd be forgiven for thinking that the topic of women in Shakespearean theater would be an open and shut case. Women were not allowed to perform on stage until well into the 17th century, after the restoration of the monarchy, and following 11 years of Puritan-led civil war, a full generation after Shakespeare died. And it shouldn't surprise us that fewer than 16% of the nearly 1,000 total characters in all of Shakespeare's plays, only around 150 characters, are women. They speak fewer lines and have fewer grand speeches, too. Women were second class, not as important, objects to be acted upon rather than subjects doing the acting. But why then do we have relatively little trouble thinking of powerful and impressive and memorable female characters? Sure, there's Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth, Romeo, Shylock, Henry V, Falstaff. But then there's Catherine, Juliet, Lady Macbeth, Ophelia, Titania, Portia, Imogen, Cleopatra, Tamora, Cordelia, and Goneril and Regan. While Shakespeare wrote many, many, many utterly throwaway male roles, every single female role, no matter how small, is unforgettable. What makes Shakespeare's women so impressive? Is it the fact that a man was able to write such perceptive insights into various aspects of womanhood? Some people point to the women in Shakespeare's plays as proof that Shakespeare could not have been written by the man from Stratford at all, but that Shakespeare had to be a woman. But whether you're a Stratfordian or anti-Stratfordian, it's undeniable that the plays attributed to him are full of maids and matrons, wives and mothers, daughters, lovers, magicians, bods. He wrote women with such a depth of feeling and passion. These are fully developed characters with wants and desires and needs and, most importantly in many cases, the ability to pursue them. To that end, Shakespeare almost feels like a feminist. Is that why his women are so impressive? They're passionate, like Juliet or Catherine, and demure, like Ophelia or Desdemona. They're strong-willed, like Portia, ambitious, like Lady Macbeth, and defiant, like Miranda. They're clever, full of vitality, ready for challenges, and, for the most part, unafraid to speak their minds. In a world that valued women only in relation to the men to which they belonged, Shakespeare's women brighten up the stage and leap from the page. Feminist icons lauded even today. Tina Packer, in her in-depth survey of women in Shakespeare's plays, Women of Will, chronicles the changing attitude of the bard towards women, from his early outings with Julia in Two Gentlemen of Verona and Joan of Arc in Henry IV Part I, to his later work with characters like Miranda in The Tempest or Hermione in The Winter's Tale. Charting the growth of Shakespeare himself as a writer in this way is fraught with difficulty, as with any situation in which you read into an author's life from their work. But there is little doubt that the women of Shakespeare changed over the course of his working life. The women of 1593 are very much not the women of 1613. But society was changing too. It would be foolish to say that Shakespeare shaped the society in which he lived to any meaningful degree on this front, but is the reverse wholly true? Were society's changing mores the only reason that Shakespeare's women grew and changed and developed in such fascinating ways over the two decades of his career? Or was he reading into and harnessing the feminine power of his women characters because they spoke to him in a singularly powerful way? In this episode, Aidan and I have modest aims to look at the changing attitude toward women characters in Shakespeare's plays, from the two gentlemen of Verona through The Tempest. How do these women act? How do they react? What imbues Shakespeare's women with the power that so few writers even today are willing to give them? Since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To 
speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee when I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. With that, hello, Aiden. Hello, Lindsay. We're, uh, yeah, going to be discussing the, the women characters of Shakespeare today. And yes. uh, it's it's a topic I'm looking forward to. I think it's one that you've been looking yeah, forward to a bit. Very much, yep. Yeah. It was one of our top ones when we came up with uh, a list of ideas of what we'd want to discuss. Uh, and it's a juicy one, yeah. There's there's a lot to talk about. So um, let, let, let's give the listeners a quick overview of how we're going to kind of structure the episode. Mm. Um, we, we're going to kind of follow tina packer's uh example as in her book she follows a chronological order Mm -hmm. through uh shakespeare's uh life and works trying to match up um and to some extent the uh changes in shakespeare's life to the changes in the women characters that are expressed we're just going to be looking mostly at the characters themselves yeah we're not we're not tying back so much to that Um, yeah but we are going to generally follow a bit of a structure that way uh we're gonna talk about um pairs of characters from different ages in the books or in the plays i should say uh so some of those earlier women uh the maids uh some of like the middle women as wives and mothers and then uh the other category yeah well and and we'll talk about you know comparing some of the queens that shakespeare has written though we're not going to be getting into the the english history plays so much just because those kind of act as a separate category almost yeah. they're they're propaganda plays they're meant to portray not so much reality as the reality that elizabeth or or king james, james wanted wanted to, <laughs> to be portrayed on stage exactly um but but yeah we are we are going to try and pair up some of these characters to show how you know the they they were different even early plays mm-hmm. you know you could have different different perceptions and different um written characteristics for for the yeah. same type of female character and and that's important also to to remember is that even though we're we're talking and and I think Aiden and I both sort of agree that that Shakespeare's women are interesting and incredible even if they're not the most um how are you going to characterize it I want to hear this well I I I <laughs> and we'll get to this I think at the end of the episode but um I wouldn't say that they are the most well-rounded characters that have ever been put to pen to paper sure. to write about. Okay, but but even still, um, it's it is interesting to see how there is a bit of a breadth when we talk about them. Yeah, even though they fit into uh, a few yeah, these general kind of, categories, yeah, categories. You know, and, like and the, we've yeah, we're guilty of that. We're putting them in these categories. It's for ease for ease of talking about it on yeah. a podcast. People do it when they write books about them. I yeah. mean, it's 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 easy maybe it's lazy but it does serve a purpose i think to kind of structure uh to structure our talk today um so yeah and some of the things we'll be touching on as that i think these are just worth mentioning off the top because we'll probably be returning to them multiple times but um there obviously be other avenues that we'll be exploring on each of these characters too but um women as they fit into the elizabethan and jacobean uh, power structures uh that existed in the time that Shakespeare right, was and writing, women's roles in that society, right? Yeah. How that how they changed and how they remained static in some instances, and well, and just how the characters themselves respond to those existences. You know, if a woman can only be, uh, you know, property of her father and then her husband, um, how how does that 
create um, the woman herself almost, and, you know. And does it arguably? Yeah. Are there women? <laughs> like, do they yeah. exist as, as, as anything other than property? Yeah. And if they don't fit into the general box of womanhood, if they can't be mothers or if they never get married, how does that... Um, play yeah. into things, yeah. which is interesting when you talk about characters like Lady Macbeth, for for instance, yep. right? So, yep. um, um, and the other one, I think, just quickly mentioning it is the whole idea of cross dressing and how it how it impacts uh, the reading of a lot of mm-hmm. the characters, um, and whether it's a subversive thing if it was undercutting. Uh, gender roles of the time or whether it was just reinforcing them by saying oh look at those silly women they can dress up and play but they all ultimately all usually wind up getting that, married at the end <laughs> or is it that the only way that a woman can can do any acting is if they're dressed yeah, as a man yeah, right if exactly. that's the only way that they can have power or yeah. anything so yeah those are those are good um uh things i'm sure we'll be coming back to quite often quite as we often. go through nothing will come of nothing I guess the first thing we'll 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 go back to the very beginning. We'll talk about some of the early um, the the early characters, early female characters, which were, I mean, there are a lot. He's written queens and maids and wives and mothers throughout the course of his career, but mm-hmm. we focused uh, in doing our research for this. We focused a little bit more on the maid character, the maiden character, or um, the the young lover. Yeah, and. Um, and we figured it would be fun to kind of compare and contrast Catherine or Katerina from uh, The Taming of the Shrew and Portia from The Merchant of Venice with Juliet from Romeo and Juliet and Ophelia from Hamlet. So this roughly fitting into the middle 1500s to the early 1600s. Yeah. Or sorry, early 1590s yeah. to early 1600s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to correct that. So um, these are our... Women who are kind of caught up in the machinations of the men around them and how do they either buck the trend and and assert control over this or how do they give in in and kind of fall under the the control even more and what happens to them in the end. Yeah. And I think uh, Catherine's a great one to start with because, I mean, Taming of the Shrews, I mean, the play's about her. She's in the title. Uh, And she's... She's a shrew. I mean, she's she's what characterized. What is a shrew? What is a shrew? A shrew is, uh, 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 <laughs> I guess you would say, an opinionated lady, <laughs> uh, young maid. Uh, so it's someone who's unmarried, unmarriageable. Yeah, uh, basically is how she's set up in the in the play. I, I wonder why why shrew though. Shrew yeah. is, is kind of a, a I don't know a rodent type figure, yeah. a, a, a animal. Yeah. It's are they odd... are they mean i don't know i've never met be. a shrew i've never <laughs> i don't know but they get you know you call women shrews today yeah. if they're if they're they speak opinionated I mean, yeah, exactly. if, they're, if yeah. they don't fall in with the chaste silent and obedient uh trope that that shakespeare which and is others... not necessarily the the uh, paragon that of today the way it was in shakespeare's time but no. yeah in shakespeare's time that was the the height of femininity was chaste silent obedient uh and Catherine was none of these things, no. especially silent. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the play goes to great lengths to, um, you know, show how strong she is in the sense that she eventually gets broken down mm-hmm. and she does consent to marry um, Petruchio. No, yeah. not Petruchio. Yeah. Is it Petruchio? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's kind of a, 
I mean, reading it now, it's it's very brutal. I mean, he basically he denies her food and doesn't let her he sleep. Gaslights and, her. Yeah, he gaslights her the whole play. Like, doesn't let her have clothing. Yeah, like it's it's awful. It's terrible. But stuff. he does it. It's it's like it, you know when you break a horse, you you broke yeah. he broke her spirit exactly. And and so I mean, we don't want to get too much into the reading. We haven't discussed this play. It's it's next up on our on our um, chronology of. Of yeah. topics but so we'll get into that a lot more but but it is interesting that she is um she's a title character as Aiden said but also um she's shown to be this strong person in order to show how dramatic it is when she's broken down yeah and I guess the interesting reading comes into that modern day readings I don't know if if yeah, uh, how uh, contemporary yeah. readings were the same but but is her transformation calculated? Is yeah. she doing this on purpose in order to assert control sort of over Petruchio or over Bianca, her sister? Yeah. Or is she actually broken? Yeah. So, and, but, and a lot of it in, in the text, it's not really clear. You can kind of read it either way. And so, we've seen performances of this where yeah. it, it does kind of go either way, yeah. where it's, where it's. There's some where it's like, she's just, yep. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm, I'm demure. I'm, chased, I'm silent yeah, and obedient exactly. now. And there's the others wife. where it's, where it's almost like she it's and me. Petruchio are kind of in on it together yeah. and they're doing this to, to make a point about something. Marriage yeah. or something. Yeah. It's not super clear. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, contrast that with uh, and that portrayal of of you know kind of giving in, but you know perhaps retaining a, a sense of of self um, to Juliet, who right. uh, you know in some ways is the exact opposite in, mm-hmm. the, in the sense that her the whole play is her seeking out what she wants, which is a relationship with Romeo in the right. end, um, and you know the the structure she's working against are family. Uh, and the, the structure that her father would have to give her away. And he's never going to give away to a, is Romeo a Montague? I can never remember. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can never remember. Yes, Romeo's a Montague. <laughs> Juliet is Capulet. Her father, her father, uh, it's so fascinating. And I love doing this play because, um, it's, it's the, the, she's 13 years old. She's yeah. not the height of sophistication. Unlike Katarina, who is much, much older Maybe not much, much older, but but certainly an old maid by the time she gets yeah, married to Patricio. Like twenty, maybe. Jeez. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> um, but she engages in all this subterfuge in order to marry Romeo with the help of Friar Lawrence and and without her father's permission because her father wants her to marry Paris, who is That's right. the this you know beautiful young man who you know and even after she's married Romeo. Um, her father consents to give her away to Paris like two days later and she has to fake her death in order to get out of it. Like there's, there's really no option for her. She can't commit bigamy and marry somebody else. She can't, although I don't know if that's necessarily, uh, it it might be a concern. It's not explicitly stated. I think it's more just, I can't betray Romeo's love and trust in Mary Paris as well. Yeah. But um, to get out of this marriage, she literally has to die. Like, that's the only way that she can get out from under under her father's thumb. Yeah. And uh, and her mother falls victim to this, too. Like, her mother is so weak-willed yeah. and can't, won't... Won't stand up to her stand husband. Stand up to yeah, her husband yeah. at all. Yeah. So um, it's really, it, you know, it shows that women were daughters. Mm-hmm. And they were property property of their parents, their property of their fathers, until they could be married off. And then they became property of their husbands. And Juliet tries to buck that a little bit and she winds up dead she winds up dead exactly (laughs) and and it's it's 
possible that she ends up dead because Friar Lawrence and Romeo botched their their plan. Romeo isn't even aware of the plan. Yeah. <laughs> but but the men that are controlling these situations don't do right by Juliet. It's yeah. really a, a horrible tragedy for this 13-year-old girl who goes through hell in the span of I think it's like 72 hours or yeah. something yeah, like that, right? Yeah, right? From beginning to end. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's you know, she's not strong-willed like Catherine is, but yeah. she's she's still doing her darndest to to assert some control over her life, and it ends up very, very badly for well, her. And, and that's kind of the the parallel is there that they both get punished basically by the patriarchal society yeah. of you know Catherine is tortured into submission, Juliet's killed yeah. by the male figures in her life eventually well, by herself, by herself, but, but pressured into it yeah. through this, right? Um, so I mean, in that sense the plays do have a similarity. The difference is in how the characters themselves, Juliet's very young and she is, yeah. you know, it doesn't seem like from the start that this is going to go well. You, well, you know, know like it's not because her name's families. in the title, but that's also interesting <laughs> because when you talk about Taming of the Shrew, like yeah. the title character, yeah. that that's a But Taming of, of her, exactly, yes, exactly, right? Like, and that's the thing. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it, part of that's the comedy uh, tragedy lens that we're being Binary. Applied. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it was going to be a different outcome for both, but, um, you know, that the, the similarity is there. But is it that much of a different outcome, well, exactly, really? Because yeah. if, if you're if you're alive, but your spirit has been completely broken, mm-hmm. is that much of a life? Wouldn't yeah. you rather be dead? Like, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess that that kind of is left open to interpretation. Yeah. And, and, and the the whims of the director. But yeah. Um, so, Interesting, yeah. So moving on to... Yeah, um, Portia and Ophelia are another kind of interesting pair in that, again, they have a similar thing in that they're they're both, they both to an extent, give in to uh, what, their, what their fathers especially uh, tell them to do. So mm-hmm. Portia uh, is, ref- is not allowed to marry unless her suitor picks the right chest of the three, uh, the lead, gold, and silver, I think they are. I don't mm. know. It's, again, it's been a while since I've read these ones. Um, but... Uh, you know, she she is forced to uh, marry whoever her father chooses based on this ridiculous three box solution. Yeah, uh, and you know, you get the the suitors that come and go. I honestly can't even remember her eventual husband's name. Is it Bassanio that she winds up marrying? No, yeah, it is Bassanio. Okay, uh, so so uh, she uh, Portia kind of is interesting in that she's uh, once uh, she gets Bassanio, uh, it's who she wants. Um, but she's basically followed through on the the patriarchal drive up to that point. Like her father has set out these caskets. Exactly. She, she exactly. can't like like give any hints to the people. Yeah. And there's these ridiculous princes and suitors who yeah, come who in come and pick in gold and silver, thinking that that. But you know, we all know that, of course, the 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 picture of Portia that is going to be in in the leaden casket. Um, and I think what's interesting is that. What what makes it successful is that she knows Bassanio and she trusts that he's going to yeah, understand this. Exactly. Whereas, you know, with Romeo and Juliet, there is no they they barely know each other. Yeah. And with Caterina and Petruchio, it's another situation where there's no love there at the beginning. It's it's Petruchio is doing this as a, a favor to his buddy who wants to marry her sister, and her sister can't get married yeah. until she gets married. So yeah. there's no there's no you know existing relationship whereas Portia and Bassanio seem to have an understanding almost yeah um so that that is what 
And she can go along with the plan because she trusts that her her love knows her well enough and yeah. is going to be able to come to, through. To the right conclusion. Right? right. Yeah. And contrasting that with Ophelia, who um, similarly uh, follows her father's directions in terms of kind of, I, I hesitate to say, leading uh, Hamlet on. But she kind of leads him on and she, he use, she uses her feminine wiles to extract information from mm-hmm. him and stuff at the behest of Polonius. Um, and... Uh, there she's she winds up being punished for it um, because partly because she doesn't have that that relationship with Hamlet that she thinks she does right um, so Hamlet's also playing her at the same time which is one of the you know she, he's going to appear mad to her and you know drive uh, right. his his father or his uncle father <laughs> uh, you know uh, to question him a little bit and stuff so there, there's a little bit more at play there it's not a straightforward love relationship because Mm-mm. of the context of the play um but i think it's so in this case ophelia is getting punished and she winds up you know going mad and right as opposed herself. to portia who is rewarded but but you're right and, and it's because they they don't they're not honest with each other. Yeah. I think the honesty and the trust that comes from Portia and Bassanio's relationship is what ends up rewarding them. And possibly the, in certain interpretations, the trust between Katerina and, and Petruchio, Petruchio could, is yeah. what leads them to have the happy ending, happy ending that they can sometimes have depending on the production of the play. Yeah. Um, but with Ophelia, I guess one thing that I, it's tragic, but I like it is that she does take control of the end and does, end her own life Hmm. and i don't know if that's because it's it's the one form of control that that a woman could have they couldn't make more money to buy themselves out of these awkward situations they couldn't you know for for a lot of women who weren't willing to dress up like men as portia does in order to get bassanio off the or in order to get Antonio off of yeah. the the charge of from Shylock, from Shylock and that whole in the courtroom scene, which yeah. is one of my favorites, yeah. and it's one of the reasons why I love Portia. But um, Ophelia's not willing to dress up like a man. She's not going to dress. And Juliet's yeah. not going to dress up like a man. Like these things don't occur to these women because yeah. they are so entrenched in in the idea of femininity, and this is what it means to be a woman, a dutiful, duty bound yeah. woman. Doesn't do these things, whereas exactly. the women who buck that are the ones who can salvage, achieve. Uh, salvage yes. this kind of happiness. Yeah. And that's, so, so yeah. within that construct, you're very limited. So yeah. both Juliet and Ophelia have to take their own lives in order yeah. to get out of the situations that they're in or in order to fix the unhappiness that they're in. Yeah. And that is tragic, but it also, I think there's a certain kind of strength in that. And, and I hesitate every time somebody says that, you know, Juliet is stupid. Yeah. You know, no, she's not. Yeah. She's, she's, she's young. young and in love. Exactly. And, yeah, and, she, and it's, yeah. it's, it's actually remarkably astute for Shakespeare to have chosen teenagers for yeah. this to happen to, because we all know that their brains just aren't fully functioning yet. And yep. they don't come online until 25 or something. <laughs> right. So, um, so that's, that's that's doubly tragic and Ophelia is not much older right yeah. so th- these are these are young women who who are they're not stupid they're yeah. they're doing they're doing the best they can yeah. and the best they can happens to be the end of their lives because that's what the society dictated was yeah. allowable yeah and they really don't have another option out of it i mean part of that's uh, it's like the opposite of plot armor it's kind of like yeah. the plot is leading them towards this tragic downfall because it is a tragedy um Whereas, you know, the Merchant of Venice, I mean, Merchant of Venice is kind of a 
tragedy if the merchant you're talking yes. about is Shylock, right? So, I mean, there's there's the, that whole aspect. But I agree. I think the, the cross-dressing aspect here is important for Portia because um, it's it's the avenue that allows her to have agency once again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's interesting because her character doesn't necessarily seem like it's building up to that. I mean, her early on in the play, she is... You can tell she's vivacious and she has mm-hmm. intelligence and she's she's well spoken. She's not she's not going to be trampled underfoot. Exactly, she's not. You know, you know Ophelia's demure and, and everything, and and uh, that's you know again Polonius exploits that. Uh, whereas Portia, you can kind of always see this coming, but then uh, when she does do the cross dressing, and she and that courtroom scene is is I think one of the biggest uh, indicators of how Shakespeare viewed women because she's the best word person mm-hmm. <laughs> in that play a play yeah. all about you know the, the contracts legal, yeah exactly legal legalities exactly yeah. um she is the best lawyer of them all yeah um, and she's a woman and, she's and a woman. She, the she women didn't read yeah, exactly. then. like that yeah. that's what's so fascinating yeah, right exactly and I think that is is a great counterpoint to Ophelia in that she winds up having the most agent she is actually the hero of the play mm-hmm. in the sense of saving everybody um, and she also has all these great tricks that she pulls on Bassanio at the end when she reveals With the, the gender yeah, reveal and yeah. everything, right? So, uh, I mean, yeah, Portia's really uh, an amazing character for that. And it's very early on in the plays. I mean, this is one of, it's still in the 1595-ish, I think, range yeah. we were thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fairly early in his career, um, but he's created a woman who's, uh, you know, headstrong. But willing to play by the rules. Yeah. Um, but undercut them when it's necessary. Yeah. And, and it's that. And, you know, she's a she's a great example of finding that balance between having the agency to um, be her own person and achieve the goals that she wants, like having her husband's friend not die. Right. Uh, and also, you know, playing by her father's rules well enough that it goes through. And again, this is again, it's because it was kind of a comedy structure. Mm hmm it lends itself to that a little more. It doesn't have the overtones of that, but it could have easily been called Antonio, the merchant of Venice who dies because Shylock gets his pound of flesh, right? Like he could have structured it however he wanted. But you could, you could still, and we, we, again, we've seen productions where Shylock is the victim at the end. And this is, this is a tragedy because Portia becomes the antagonist who takes Shylock's or, or contributes to the taking away of Shylock's, um, his agency and his religion, everything that that means anything to him, his daughter his is daughter, gone, everything. his money is gone, his livelihood is gone, his religion, like everything is gone. Yep. And and Portia is, <laughs> is Antonio's savior and the one who sends Shylock to his grave. Yeah. You know, like this yeah. is this is a tragedy That's if you read it that point. way. Yep. <laughs> so so she's she's almost villainous in that in mm-hmm. that reading if you read it that way, which it's hard not to. Today, yeah, it, like yeah. a modern reading of of yeah. Taming of the I mean, sorry of Merchant of Venice. Merchant of Venice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's I mean Shylock's just such a he's a kind of a good villain though at the same time because he's yeah. just, he's so insistent like he will not accept anything because he wants vengeance so badly which that, we'll we'll get to when yeah. we talk about the Merchant yeah. of Venice a little bit more but but it's I do like that that Portia is not easy to box in she's yes. not very much like um the opposite of the other characters we've mentioned so yeah. far in this in this <laughs> yeah. opening bit. Yeah. Portia's kind of she's set a, apart. She's a maid, but she's also a pretty good wife before they're even married to Bassanio. Yeah. You know, like like yeah, she's and all I, these things. I should also say like the trust that, that Bassanio and Portia have for one another is kind of undercut entirely by 
by the fact that Bassanio gives the ring away. And, <laughs> yeah. Like he's yeah. this, and and again, it's it it's very much like Two Gentlemen of Verona, where you know the men are just these bumbling idiots who yeah. have no, and the women are the ones who yeah. who kind figure of it figure it out and, and save yeah. the day, yeah. sort of. But in in Taming of the Shrew, sorry, in The Merchant of Venice, um, there's a there's a, a much more positive. Um, role for the women yeah and 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 they have the kind of the the forward momentum of their own volition yeah they're the ones who carry out these these actions and arguably it's because portia's wearing pants it's not because yeah Yeah. you know exactly she wouldn't be able to do that if she were wearing a dress exactly and and that's why i love the the cross-dressing elements i think there's a lot of ways of interpreting them but Mm -hmm. i i really find them as uh shakespeare undercutting whether you know because if women aren't capable of thinking then there's no way they could possibly cross-dress as a man become a lawyer and out lawyer all the lawyers right but they do so i mean i think i feel like it's it's quite a um a disruptive kind of yeah understanding of of what women were capable of um you could review it as like oh well it's just more enforcing the patriarchy that of course yeah dress like a man then you act like a man yeah exactly and then it's possible but yeah but but you're right that that the women it's almost it it's essentialist in a way it's Mm -hmm. saying that that there isn't this big difference between men and women the difference is really superficial and it's based on the the clothing the clothing but at your core there's an essential intelligence to humans and women possess that too yeah so it is rather radical i guess in a sense especially when you see and there's so many cross-dressing characters in shakespeare so i mean we'll talk about this a lot i'm sure as we go through the rest of our character list here Mm Um, there are some other maids, maiden characters yeah. throughout Shakespeare's yeah, career that are worth mentioning. We've we've listed out a few. There's um, Cressida from Troilus and Cressida, Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing, um, Viola from Twelfth Night, mm-hmm. the other comedy women generally. Yeah, yeah, I kind of we kind of clumped them all together because and Rosalind, yeah, as yeah, you like it. Yeah, um, exactly. these are all characters who, again, either um, like fit into that patriarchal norm they're demure and they're 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 feminine they're mm-hmm. ultra feminine or they have like viola for instance you know cross-dressing tendencies that lead to their salvation almost yeah. at the end right yeah. so um yeah I, I know you really like cressida as a character aiden if you want to talk about well cressida uh yeah i mean she's she's interesting in that she's um a maid who's kind of she it's the ultimate patriarchy you know you know hammer that comes down on her yeah. because i mean she's basically she's the reason she's the phrase uh as true as troilus and as false as Cressida is around is because she was basically sl- sold as a as a like almost a prostitute to uh the greeks and that's what upsets troilus enough to think yeah. that she's untrue is because yeah. she was sold like she's not she has no agency whatsoever um and then he's mad at her when she's sleeping with another guy because that guy's offering her protection in a world where she has no protection like it is literally one of the worst treatment of women yeah it's a fundamental misunderstanding of of what cressida the 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 trouble that cressida is exactly on the part of troilus because and and i think it's interesting also because cressida is um she's powerful in a way that other women aren't because she talks back to the men while yes. dressed as a woman, which is yeah. like Catherine, Katerina yeah, yeah, in Taming yeah. of the Shrew. Um, but also there's some, like, she's she's so, she's innocent until she marries Troilus. Yeah. 
And then as soon as she's had sex, she's this fallen woman. Everybody starts making fun of her, including her own father. And then she's sent off to the Greeks. And she banters with them in a way that doesn't happen. And it's part of that that banter. I mean, some people have read that as, as like she's got sexual agency yeah, and it's almost like bit. her sexuality is what saves her life. Yeah. Cause she has value finally. Is. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. But it's also what Troilus can't like, that's what devalues her. Yeah. In her husband's because eyes. He can't have that sexuality. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, very, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I always feel terrible for Cressa. She's really yeah. got the shittiest deal. And uh, yeah. So um, the other one, I really love those Beatrice mm. from uh, much do about nothing because yeah. she's, she she is the one woman who is consistent in being neither silent, silent chaste, nor mm-hmm. obedient. Uh, she's not punished for it, though. But she's not punished for it. Which is awesome. It, which is the really interesting thing yeah. because, um, and I can't remember Benedict. her love interest. Benedict, thank you. Uh, yeah, her love interest's name, I couldn't remember. <laughs> but uh, he's uh, he loves her for that. Yeah. And I think that's almost the more feminist character is the fact that there's a man out there. I, I think he's a knight or uh, a yeah. man of the realm or something. And he uh, he falls for her. He's just yeah. like, you know what? She's great. Twice. Because yeah. they were together <laughs> before right. the play starts. Yeah. And then they're not. Yeah. And that's why they have this witty back and forth. Yeah. Because they know each other intimately. Yeah. But they're not together anymore. So they can, they, they, they can have fun. I can imagine this as being like... Um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, I just... Well, it was Kenneth Branagh and... Uh, what's her name? Um, oh, wow. Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson yeah, in, in the, the, the 90s film version. Yeah. yeah, which was amazing. Yeah, no, it, it's perfect. <laughs> it's like you have this shared history and you can you can elevate your... Your friendship is, is deeper than just would-be lovers because you yeah. are... Well, have lovers. been yeah. lovers, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. know? So yeah. it's it's great. And then... And she does. She sticks up for her friends. She's yeah. um, she's very. Is that with hero? Is that much ado? I think so. Yeah. 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 Like she's just. She's just. She's she incredible. Her, yeah, I love. She Beatrice. is her own character. Yeah. She's seems more or less fully fleshed out, and she still finds a way to make it work in yeah. the world. Um, and part of that's because she has Benedict too. Uh, support her and he winds yeah. up marrying her at the end um but the fact that there's a male character that's willing to see the value in that yeah i think would have been pretty subversive as well at the time. which and and because a lot of people think uh scholars people who are fans of shakespeare look at much ado about nothing and taming of the shrew as kind of the same story told yeah twice yeah but, but with very different way. outcomes and very different ways like benedict and beatrice are very much like petruchio and katarina but um, but it's more positive. But it's more it's positive. Less, and it's it's a little bit later on. So it's maybe a little bit more mature. But I love the fact that even in this early period, you have um, you have all these varying depictions of young women as being either very much oppressed and stuck within their, their role and their mm-hmm. place in society and that great chain of being, or they are able to assert themselves and they're able to assert themselves in a few different ways, which is really cool too. It's not just, it, you know, it's not like Shakespeare only allows women to assert themselves when they're dressed as men or only yeah. allows them to assert yep. themselves by killing themselves. Yeah. Right. Like that's <laughs> not, it's, and, and I think that's where you kind of break the mold a little bit of, women as stock characters yeah. they they react and interact with the other characters 
appropriately yes. and individually yeah. depending on what the plot needs. And it is important to remember that Shakespeare isn't exactly creating these these stories no. whole cloth. Like no. he's he's always adapting. Yeah. I mean, so it's yeah. not it's not strictly Shakespeare that can take credit for that. But True. it's But he, he's popular. also known for making adjustments and changing yeah, things as he exactly. as he wants. So, so. yeah. Uh I mean, yeah, Viola is a great example, again, of the cross-dressing. I don't think we need to go too much more into that. Um, uh, Rosalind, Rosalind is a character from uh, As You Like It, mm-hmm. which apparently I've seen twice, but I, I can't remember the play, unfortunately, which is not a great sign. Uh, but That's just you and your terrible memory. <laughs> exactly, like, especially with real. character names. Is that a Rosalind? Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Romeo and Juliet. Was <laughs> that one, about... Which one are they? Uh, yeah. So, um, but apparently, yeah, she. I was reading about her character. And again, she's another kind of interesting example of um, a maid who uh, is kind of forced into tough situations, but kind of comes out um, mm-hmm. okay in mm-hmm. the end of of the, the scheme of um, the patriarchal society that she's around. It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury. Signifying... Nothing. Um, so I think we can move on to kind of the uh, middling period or early yeah. middle part of, of Shakespeare's career with um, some of the characters. We, we've just decided that we're going to compare two characters who are both wives and or mothers. Well, in this case, not wives, mothers. Wives specifically and yeah. not mothers. Yeah. But but we can talk about mothers a little bit in this because um, we're going to look at Desdemona from um, Othello. Othello and Lady Macbeth from Macbeth Macbeth, obviously and these are two women who are very very interesting characters they're like I said these middling characters who are both um well Desdemona I mean obviously she's I I don't know if she's the first but she's one of the early instances of a woman who's falsely accused of adultery and can't defend herself doesn't even get the chance really to defend herself before her husband kills her and um and she's Othello is her husband and She's very much acted upon by not only Othello, but by Iago. And the whole play is structured around, or it seems to to lead right towards this um, this final confrontation between, between husband and wife. Yeah. And there's just a profound lack of trust. And, and there's there are a lot of reasons why Othello is important and why Othello is, is a different kind of play. Because Othello himself is... Um, not particularly powerful in in the same sense yeah, that other male sense, characters yeah. are because he's black because yeah. he's he's a, a an oppressed figure or represents an oppressed class of yeah. of character so um his psychological space is very much coming yeah. to bear on on his wife and the people around him yeah. and it's taken advantage of by Iago who yeah. is the a prime villain yeah. so um so as a wife, though, Desdemona is absolutely pure and true, and Othello just can't, because of those psychological burdens that he's bearing, he can't trust her. He he mm-hmm. can't accept that she didn't um, betray him. Yeah. So the flip side of that is with Lady Macbeth, yeah. who is who just, is one of the more, more most powerful women, I think, yeah. and she's fantastic. I love <laughs> Lady Macbeth too because she's just. I mean, you could argue that the whole play hinges on women. And like, yeah. Macbeth really does like the witches kind of set everything yep. off. There's these self fulfilling prophecies, and you've got Lady Macbeth goading her husband into fulfilling them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. take more power and do this and yeah. do that, and and her breakdown 
at the end is also fascinating because, again, we get this psychological portrait of someone who is so guilty and so wracked with guilt. And on top of that, there's this this very interesting sense of her character being defined by what she is as well as by what she isn't. And and the motherhood mm-hmm. aspect comes into play there too, that, that it, it's implied that if she had been a mother, she would be a softer person, but because she's not, yeah. like... I forget the quote. It's fantastic, though. It's like, you know, stop up my uterus, you know, like just gird me against all of the the softness that necessarily flows from my womanhood and make me a man almost. Right. And and turn me into this the person that my husband needs. And it's important to remember, too, that Macbeth was written um, or performed shortly after Elizabeth died. Elizabeth famously uh, not a mother. I don't think Lady Macbeth as a, as a non-mother character, character would be allowed on the yeah, stage if Elizabeth right. was on the throne. Yeah. But it seems almost like maybe a commentary on on motherhood yeah. and how essential motherhood is to soft femininity. Yes. Well, definitely of the archetype of the time, right? Like you, you needed... I mean, women were property to produce more property in the yeah. form of children, right? Yeah. And if they weren't either capable or willing to do that, then what value do they have? And here we have two different answers almost because Desdemona as well is not a mother. No, she's um, not. That's they've, right. They've not been together very long. So, you know, potentially she could have been one eventually. Uh, but uh, Lady Macbeth is not a mother, will not be a mother. So what value does she have? Well, she's basically running the country <laughs> essentially. Um, she's she's the one, she's the voice in the ear of the king driving him to yeah. make the decisions. She creates he her own value, yeah, which is exactly. really awesome. Yeah. And and I feel like that um, that marks her off as really different. Yes. Because she's 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 creating a role for herself where there wouldn't necessarily be one. Well, and you're right. Uh, she does make her own value, um, whereas Desdemona kind of doesn't, and that and that's also an interesting mm-hmm. contrast between the two. Um, Desdemona's happy to play mm-hmm. the male game. She's a wife. She is true. She is silent, chaste, and obedient. Basically, yeah, I mean, yeah. probably not chaste anymore because she's with she's married to Othello. But uh, but chaste you know, within that relationship, exactly, it's, exactly, it's, yeah, it's yeah, allowable. Yeah. So I mean, she's really they're they're two opposite ends of fulfilling the Shakespearean era um, idea of the the ideal woman. So, um, but they're both. Um, well, again, they both wind up dead. Yeah. Uh, again, Lady Macbeth, interestingly, uh, is does she commit suicide? She well, does, it's, it's it's not really clear. It's not clear. Like it? she goes mad and then she's dead. Like it's yeah. it's whether she. I think it's implied that she does end her own life. Yeah, which which could be seen as an indictment of women trying to reach be, yeah, overreach, overreach with their ambition. Now. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, whereas Desdemona also dies. Because she doesn't do any, she's not ambitious yeah. at all. She doesn't even defend herself uh, really strongly when she's she's basically saying, "Well, I know I'm true." So yeah, she believes so me. so strongly in her yeah. own innocence that and she trusts Othello enough yeah. that uh, he's never going to hurt her. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, in both cases, women wind up dead because <laughs> either they they push take too action hard or don't or don't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and that's that's kind of an interesting take on wives, especially because. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, previously we talked about the maids and they were still independent women to an extent. Like, I mean, they all usually, a lot of those maids had father figures who were important. Well, and, and or they the get stage. married at the end of the play. So exactly. they become wives, but we don't see them as wives. Exactly. But, but the, the women who are wives first and foremost in the play, um, I, I think it's interesting in that, uh, especially for Lady Macbeth, that they could be viewed as that powerful over their husbands. Right. That, that just a few whispers, a few suggestions could have mm-hmm. him murder a king and, you know, do and, you know, set the kingdom, the kingdom into chaos and stuff. Uh, and Desdemona, it's like, uh, it's again, almost the opposite. It's like, well, she's, she can be so, she can mean so little to someone like Othello, mm-hmm. um, whose social situation, as you said, is so precarious mm-hmm. um, that they can, he'll just throw away her life with, with no, thought whatsoever basically like he doesn't really investigate that right no not at all he just takes iago's word word as as gospel yeah um over his wives his wife's word which is uh, comes back to what we talked about in in the two gentlemen of rona that that male friendship was the paramount um relationship that that could be trusted and and the relationship between a husband and wife was valued less so we have two examples of that where um if othello had trusted desdemona we wouldn't have had Othello would be called something else entirely. Yeah. It wouldn't be a tragedy. And if we had, uh, and, and on the flip side, we have Lady Macbeth almost becoming a man in order to become her husband's best friend. Yeah. Um, and that leads to the ultimate tragedy. So it really does seem like both of those are less about the relationship that men have to women and more an indictment of the relationships that men can have with other men yeah. and how... Um, how women either fall victim to it or victim to the men when they indulge in that relationship or because of that relationship. Like they, they, they become that relationship and then they fall victim. But it's interesting that both of those characters are, are women, wives before mothers. They haven't become mothers or they will not become mothers. There are other wives who are mothers that are, that represent interesting things. Like we have, Tamora in Titus Andronicus, who yeah. is, um, yeah, which again I've never read, but uh, I read the description yesterday. Yes. And she sounds like a badass. Like, oh yeah, she's, like she's she's, she's a, a captured woman whose children are all murdered, and she eats the like she it's it's she's so fierce and 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 angry. I think that's yeah. the thing. She is so spiteful and driven by that spite to commit more atrocity, um, and she just doesn't care. And I'm not sure how much. Like, that's not a typical representation of femininity, but it is interesting that it is a woman who is Titus Andronicus's main enemy it's in the that play. Like, she, yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. she is, she's the one that that features most prominently that he's up against, yeah. right? Um, she's the captured queen that he's, she's the reason, she's going to be married to so-and-so and then, or she ends up marrying the person who was going to marry Titus's daughter. And there's... All sorts of problems that arise because of these things, but she is primarily just a very angry woman. We don't yeah. see her. She's she's fiercely defensive of her children, yeah. and that's why the 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 punishment that she gets for that is that she eats a pie in which her sons have been baked yeah. into which they've been baked. Yeah. So she she's very like it's i don't i don't quite know how she fits in but it's it's well it's fierce seems, motherhood exactly she seems like 
an exaggerated version of Lady Macbeth almost yeah. in the sense that she's basically becoming a male role, but she retains that motherhood aspect, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. And, and I think it's an interesting play because it is, again, an earlier one, actually. Um, but this this strong woman character, literally strong, like in the fact mm-hmm. that she wields power and and, uh, you know, is the antagonist, I think is really interesting. I think when we get to Titus Andronicus, mm-hmm. it'll be worth talking about her character a lot. Um, some other really good ones. Uh, I think Gertrude alone is is a, such yeah. an interesting character because she's Gertrude from uh, Hamlet. that's Hamlet's mother. Yeah, Hamlet's yeah. mother. Um, because she is both. Uh, a wife, an ex-wife, and a mother in mm-hmm. the play, uh, and in Hamlet, she's uh, two of those things, and it's it, it's that dichotomy that drives Hamlet to hate her. Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, and uh, Tina Packer's book, uh, when discussing Gertrude, I thought it was really interesting in the sense that uh, all the the versions of Hamlet that she's directed and acted in, um, in most of them, Gertrude is happier. Mm-hmm. Now that she's with uh, Claudius mm-hmm. um, and not Hamlet Sr. Because uh, she was never kind of happy in her previous marriage, perhaps. And uh, she willingly chose to remarry. Um, and that's what causes... I mean, and Hamlet says so. Like, you you, you jumped into another guy's bed right away. Yeah. Um, you know, she could have put it off. You know, she could have been in mourning for five years or whatever, right? Like, Well, there was an acceptable period of time that was considered okay. And the fact that she didn't abide by that yeah. makes her exactly. suspect. All suspect. of her motives are suspect. Exactly. It's, at least, especially for Hamlet, yeah. right? But, um, but it, it's almost like, well, why did she do that? Probably because she wanted to. I mean... Claudius doesn't really there's no real indication that their relationship is that bad yeah you know and it's um hers and Claudius yeah yeah yes, Gertrude's right. and Claudius right so uh it's she's an interesting character in that sense is that she's for you know as a queen she's probably and everyone agreed when she was when people discuss her basically mm-hmm. in the way Hamlet talked about her before um, she was fulfilling the the, the role, the role the dutiful of role. the dutiful role. She was probably silent, chaste, and obedient as queen for um, many years as mm-hmm. as Hamlet's wife, um, and so she's probably she's following a similar role under Claudius. But it's just it's the fact that she chose Claudius is enough to make Hamlet hate her. Yeah, and that's really interesting. That it's it's that small. It's her seeking her own pleasure. Yeah, that causes him to be upset because it's never once implied that she had any part in Hamlet's father's no, death. Not at all. He's not mad at her, even though he he knows Claudius killed his father. He doesn't think his mother was involved. He doesn't hate her because of any involvement with that. Yeah. It's purely because she didn't mourn yeah. his death. The way the Hamlet way. wanted her to. Yeah. And yeah. that that is it's sad and it's something that I think a lot of a lot of people experience. Um, you know, you have an aging parent who who is widowed and they marry again and you feel suspicious of their even if it's been twenty years since they <laughs> lost their spouse. I mean, it's 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 not an uncommon yeah, reaction thing. to have, for sure. But Hamlet takes it to an extreme, and, and it's not fair to Gertrude. She doesn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And yet she still ends up dying at the end yeah. because, well, everybody dies <laughs> everybody in Macbeth. Dies, yeah. Or in Hamlet. Yeah. In Macbeth, too. Yeah. But in, in Hamlet, um, everybody dies. So Gertrude ends up dying because of the the silly uh, preoccupation that Hamlet has with, with um, 
defending his father's honor, which maybe at the start, and we can talk about this when we get to Hamlet, because yeah. I'm sure we'll have things to say about it, but is it is it in Hamlet's head entirely? Does he actually need to seek revenge? Does his father's ghost actually come down to him? Yeah. Is this actually part of the the story? Yeah. Or is this all in Hamlet's head? And, and it's really sad that, again, you have this powerful woman who is queen of Denmark uh, twice over <laughs> to two different yeah. kings, and she is still kind of under the thumb of her son yeah, in such a strange way. And all because she has needs and desires yeah. for someone that he doesn't like and yeah. doesn't approve of. Yeah. And all, she's condemned for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a brutal, it's a kind of a, a rough, again, she gets a rough break for break yeah. of it here because um, yeah, she's really not, I mean, the rest of the kingdom is kind of, okay with it to an extent i mean well, we don't get any indication get that they're riding much. in the streets yeah, about exactly. it right they don't yeah. really mind it's just hamlet and his kind of adolescent yeah. fury at her um which kind of sets everything which off is, and it's it's interesting because she does have those those dual mother uh wife roles and i think um you know those when those get into conflict mm-hmm. we don't get too much of that in shakespeare's no. plays i think Car- she might be one of the only examples of someone who's who's desire to be a good mother. I mean, and, and she, you see that too. Yeah. I mean, and, and even Hamlet, Hamlet and Hamlet even admits that like he yeah. still loves her as a mother. He just thinks she failed a, as a wife. Yeah. And that is, that is, <laughs> there's a split it, because she can't be both. She can't yeah. be a, a good mother and a bad wife because she's a bad wife. All of a sudden she's a bad woman, period. Yeah. And even though he admits that she is, she's a good mother yeah. and, and that there's still love there. He yeah. can't accept her. And he doesn't, he doesn't stop her from poisoning herself, right? No, Is that how true. she dies? I don't remember how she dies. Yeah, she drinks the poison. <laughs> she drinks the poison. He could have just smacked it out of her hand and said, sure. no, don't. Or uh, Well, no, he didn't know. It was no, that's no, true. It was Claudius, it was Claudius yeah, but but that's yeah. that's another instance. Yeah. Like you know, Claudius himself does nothing to yeah. you know her to value that. to him is really only only extends so far as the throne, and after mm-hmm. that he has no, um, you know. Yeah, what's their relationship? I, it's yeah. hard to tell, yeah. right? And then that's and that's one of the great things about Hamlet is that a lot of this stuff is kind of open to interpretation and left yeah. unsaid, so you can read into it and play it different ways on stage. I think Hermione in The Winter's Tale is another one that's similar to Gertrude in that she um, she's accused of adultery and um, is is banished and dies, oh. but comes back to life, which makes her kind of an interesting character huh. in and of okay. herself. But in the process, like her husband is so upset at her because she convinced it's so silly like he sees her having success where he failed in convincing someone to do something and he assumes oh she's sleeping with him and then banishes her <laughs> that's such a typical kind and of thing. and she gives birth to a, a baby girl that he also banishes but then in the process of all of this um his children his son dies mm-hmm. and he and then his wife dies and then his daughter's gone and then he's you know he's he's distraught and he's distraught for 16 years until his daughter Perdita comes back and things return to normal and Hermione comes back to life. So there's, um, in this case it's, and I forget Hermione's husband's name, the, the, but he, Leontes? Yeah. Leontes, maybe. He is the, um, he is the Hamlet figure who doesn't trust that his, his Uh, wife is, is, she's not a good wife. Yeah. And he doesn't trust the motherhood aspect. Probably, you know, there there are a lot of things, and we'll get to that. But um, 
but in that case, she's a bad wife again. And then it doesn't matter that she's whether she's a good mother or not, she's gone. Yeah. And the children are gone too. Yeah. And that and then everything falls apart. Mm. So but in that case, there's a happy ending. Once once order is restored, Hermione comes back to life. She she literally yeah. like it's it's literally said that her statue comes to life. So there's a magical element there too that but this is why the Winter's Tale and Cymbeline are yeah, problem plays. Yeah, they don't yeah. fit they don't nicely fit into easily, the, yeah. the other categories. So yeah. um but she would be the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head yeah. right now that fits that dichotomy of wife and mother yeah. and has to balance both. Well, another one that is, but it's not integral. It's not as integral to the, to the play is Cleopatra. Mm. Um, Cause Anthony and Cleopatra, she's, she's had kids, I think with Caesar already. And some of the, she has kids with Anthony as well now. Um, so she has this motherhood role, but it, it, it's not as fully explored as obviously with, uh, Gertrude or, or Hermione. Um, but Cleopatra is another interesting woman in that she is a wife. Yeah. Um, but she's also the the queen. She is the ruler of Egypt. Well, it, and the it, Romans view her purely as a sex symbol. Exactly. Like she is symbol symbolic of all the things that have led to their rulers being pulled in. She's a seductress. Yes, she's yes, a siren. Exactly, yeah. And uh and talk about being punished i mean yeah. like she dies <laughs> all her kids i think are killed as well i don't remember but again she not. doesn't die she dies by her own hand yes she does she takes that into her own under her own volition she yeah. clasps the asp to her breast exactly. and, and kills herself and the other interesting thing is that there is i don't remember where it is in the play but at some point she basically has to choose between she could seek uh rome's she could go and support rome instead and leave yeah. anthony to his own devices yeah. and die but she chooses she feels genuine love for him mm-hmm. and she has the children with him uh and she chooses to yeah. side with him even though she knows she's probably going to lose the war because yeah. uh rome's just a juggernaut at this point and and egypt just can't sustain them so yeah. uh she's kind of stuck into this into this situation mm-hmm. um but she she makes that act of choice to side with the man she loves she chooses yeah love in uh to an extent kind of going back all the way to juliet and mm-hmm. you know choosing this against the the power structures that are ganging up against her um and when she does die yeah she she does it by herself um so she i mean as a queen figure even more than lady Macbeth, i feel cleopatra is an active woman she, yes. she's very much um she doesn't rely on anything she's kind of the Beatrice of tragedies in the sense that she's always herself. Yeah. Uh, She has, I mean, she was granted with, you know, being coming into the monarchy and, and taking on the role of, she was born into, she was born into the high position. Exactly. So, I mean, she has that going for her, but she uses it well. um, And she's, she's lived a long life basically of, of playing this political game and doing it very well Mm -hmm. up until uh, Anthony pisses off the the Romans and and loses the war and everything. So um, poor Ptolemies. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, they were all inbred too. So let's not get about her mother. Let's not talk about that. Uh, but yeah. So I mean, she's another really interesting one. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Another category that uh, moving on to the later plays. Yeah. Um, is the role of the daughter and mm-hmm. daughters in Shakespeare's plays. Um, daughters being kind of the first role that a woman would would assume and uh and so the contrast that we've decided to go with is is imogen from cymbeline one of those later problem plays the romances as they're often called and miranda from the tempest um both daughters both um somewhat defined but also they fit into the standard of femininity as well in a lot of respects 
and they both have more or less ha- well they don't die yeah. so let's like i mean it's 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 happy endings right that they don't they don't end up dead because of their defiance of their fathers so um imogen is the daughter of cymbeline who is the king of the britons Cymbeline is, is the only play that I know of that's set in Celtic Britain. Yeah. There is no other Shakespearean play that's... I don't think so. Oh, it's Tennyson. Unless you can't... Well, no, I think those are all set in Rome. They're all actually so set in Rome. So if there's any yeah. kind of link to Britain, it's Roman Britain. It's, yeah, yeah. it's This is pre-Roman. Yeah. And, uh, or around the Roman yeah, period. So I think Imogen ends up stopping the war between the, the Romans, Romans and the Britons and, yeah, in the play. Okay. But, um... She is the daughter of the king, and he wants her to marry his stepson, I think, or half, mm-hmm. her half-brother. No, I think it's stepson. Okay. And she refuses and marries Posthumus instead. Mm-hmm. And her father is is unbelievably angry at that and banishes Posthumus. And then um, Imogen is accused by the king's stepson of being um, slutty, basically. And yeah. he does this... He he's able to gain access to her bedchamber and finds a mole on her breast yeah. that he then relays to the king to say to prove that he's been with yeah with Look how Imogen, she Imogen. Is, like, exactly yeah, yeah. and so Imogen is banished and she takes it upon herself to not only um, reclaim her husband's place in Britain but also her own virtue and, and her own innocence yeah. and she does this she she again cross-dresses a little bit and gets into with a family that um that kind of shelters her and, and takes care of her and in the end she is proven right yeah. and 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 order is restored and yeah. everything comes happily posthumous can come back and everything is great but um but that initial act of defiance leads to false accusations of of infidelity and adultery and and sluttishness and that um instead of in the case of desdemona for example it doesn't lead to imogen's death it leads yeah. to her banishment and there are problems but she ends up you Being know able to solve them herself yeah which is important yeah. right and taking that and, and she has help i mean yeah. the the brothers that she the well they find out their brothers over the course of the play but um they they help her and she does she's not alone yeah but the impetus is all hers. Yes. She's um, the motivating factor behind the the resolution of those problems. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, she's, she's, even though she's defiant and kind of, um, she's not obedient. She doesn't yeah. follow that, yeah. that chase silent obedient thing. She is innocent and she's very beautiful. Like she's, she's very typically, um, a, a beautiful heroine, character in shakespeare Mm -hmm. and everybody agrees that she's beautiful too but she's um she's still so she's like she's able to retain those maybe outward feminine looks until she cross-dresses at which point she's yes like don't some of the characters still remark on her beauty or something yeah like it's just it's it's undeniable so she's (laughs) still very very feminine but she's able to stand up for herself so that's something that is denied some of the earlier characters like mm. Ophelia, who is noted yeah. for her beauty. And um, so, so that's important, I think, to note. Same with Miranda, who is, um, this is less of, less of a compare contrast and yeah. more just, this is, yeah, not a contrast, a comparison, yeah, I guess. Comparison, yeah. um, Miranda being Prospero's daughter, she's the only female character 
out of four female characters who are mentioned even, she's the only one to appear on stage. Yeah. And she kind of is this stand-in for chastity or virtue, which a lot of people take as a kind of a sexist view yeah. and say that she doesn't exist as anything more than that. But but it, she's an important feminizing figure. Um, she's, she's the foil for Prospero, right? Yeah. Like she's what allows him to embrace qualities that are not typical to powerful male characters like compassion and 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 that shows how there's there's two sides to great leadership i think and and without miranda the tempest would be a very different play yeah prospero would be a very different character because he he exists for miranda he does a lot of what he does for his daughter um and they've been banished to this island and it's it's hardship upon hardship for them but but she is still this civilizing force yeah because without her, he would just be a madman. Mm-hmm. So it's because of the woman in his life, his daughter, yeah. that he is able to retain his humanity and and if affect um, positive change by the end of the play. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And and Miranda's interesting for me, uh, partly because um, she also engaged. Like, I can't remember the play well enough, unfortunately, right now. But, you know, she basically engages uh, her love interest herself. Yeah. Um, it's not something her, her well, father... Well, and after refusing kinda, him, because her father yeah. wants her to marry Prince yeah. Ferdinand. Yeah. But she refuses, and then she's like, well, he's Maybe. not that bad, exactly. and then goes after him, right? Exactly. So. And and giving him, giving her... I mean, she's really, yeah, like you said, she's really the, the crux of the whole play. Um, and yet she's not just a plot device. She 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 is a character who mm. kind of feels fully fleshed out, and you get to go on that journey with her of falling in love with her her suitor and yeah. uh, helping her father, you know, come to forgiveness and yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So I mean, she she's really great that way too. And I think it is. Um, I think both characters are kind of interesting in that this is near the end of Shakespeare's right. career. Um, and the women he's, these daughters that he's writing about, um, have agency Yeah, and they have, um, they are capable of happiness within right. the structures that we've been talking about all episode. Right. Um, and I think that's a big change. Um, and I, 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 I again, we were talking about Tina Parker's book at the, or Packer, sorry, Tina Packer's book at the start. And I've mentioned a couple times, um, I generally didn't. Uh, care for the whole matching Shakespeare's right. life to the women characters, but this one does feel uh, prescient in a, in a way because uh, he had a daughter, two, two in daughters. Fact, they were both around, you know, in their twenties at this point yeah. in his career. So you know, they, they were they were in that age where they were uh, probably for sure married. I think, yeah. uh, probably having some kids of their own. And you know, Shakespeare was looking towards retirement. You know, he's he's getting older. Um, again, this is. I don't usually do this, but I I can totally see this where, you know, he's looking at these fully grown women realizing, wow, I've seen them grow up from little children to these people now. Yeah. And they are, they're full people. Yeah. You know, it kind of puts to rest, you know, like, well, are women just property? He's coming out and saying hard no, because this is, he's seen it himself, I think. And it, it is clear in these characters that he wants them to not only have the agency, but to have the agency to achieve happiness. Yeah. And, and the fact that they're both daughters, um, who disobey their parents, their fathers specifically, um, is, because they know better. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. They know better than their fathers. And I think that's something that, um, you know, Juliet doesn't get that. 
1593 or whenever no. whenever Romeo and Juliet was written. She knows She's, better than her father. She knows that this will end the feud between the Capulets yeah. and the Montagues. And and Lord Capulet doesn't doesn't want um, to end it. Yeah, no, he, well, it's, maybe he maybe he wants to end it, but he doesn't think that there's any. Um, his it doesn't it wouldn't have even occurred to him that yeah. his thirteen year old daughter would have the answer, yeah. whereas um and I don't remember how old Miranda is yeah I don't think it is I don't know how old Imogen is yeah but um but they're not they're not treated like children yes and I think that's the important thing is that their fathers are displeased with their disobedience mm-hmm. but in the end the fathers realize that their daughters were right. Yeah. And, and even if they don't come out explicitly and state that they know their daughters were right, yeah. the end of the play resolves the question for us. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what's fascinating about these later problem yes. plays and the daughters. And, and you're right. I mean, it's hard to not read into it. And, and everybody always reads into te- the Tempest as yeah, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's swan, swan song, song yeah. and, and Prospero's final speech being the writer laying down his pen, just as Prospero lays down his wand, like yeah. it's, or his staff. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard not to do that, even though we don't like to do that. We're doing it here. And that, I mean, send us an email if you disagree. But, yeah. but I mean, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think the biggest contrast to mention for that whole thing is obviously King Lear and his oh, yes. daughters. Because uh, their relationship is less good. <laughs> At least Regan and Goneril's are. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, that's a case study in daughters. Uh, between the two evil ones and Cordelia, the virtuous and true uh, yeah. one. And I think it's it's interesting in that um, Lear is uh, obsessed with um, control, even to his, mm-hmm. his final, you know, even he's as he's giving up away control, control, but he wants to control, but he wants to it, control all. it all. Still. Yeah. And it's... Um, and it's the silliness and the the hypocrisy of that that leads to all of his problems in the yeah. first place. Um, but then these these women characters are, you know, in a way punished. And I mean that in the sense of the play punishes them morally by saying they're bad characters yeah. for doing what he told them to do, essentially. Right. Like he gave them a third of his land each. Or well, more because he didn't give anything to Cordelia, yeah. and then he's upset when they're doing things with it that he doesn't like. Like yeah. it's Lear is kind of a, a stupid character that yeah. It's well, he's hard a to, doddering old man. He's, he's a doddering old man. He yeah. doesn't really understand what's happening. Um, and when he gets taken advantage of, I mean, it's it sounds like we're excusing elder abuse, which is not, no, <laughs> not no. cool either. But, <laughs> but you know, like it's it's kind of like he he wanted he was not willing to actually let go. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that Regan and Goneril are kind of held up as like the emblems of terrible daughters who are untrue and don't care about their father is, uh, you know, understandable, Mm -hmm. but it feels like he, um, was asking for it. Jeez, I walked right (laughs) into that. That's terrible. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting way to say that the, these are terrible. They're the epitome of terrible daughters. And then you have Cordelia who's perfect. Um, well, Lear was the architect of his own destruction. Exactly. And, and his daughter's, being the product of of his loins for lack of a better <laughs> i mean they they took advantage of him and that is that is absolutely true but it was his own um ineptitude and and his own his own I think, lack of awareness that they would do that well you know? and 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 i think it's it's a condemnation of 
of unchecked power when yeah. you're when you're someone who has been surrounded by yes men your whole life yes. you can't imagine that someone would do something bad to you yeah. you you would be shielded from that and yeah. and when it's your own daughters who are doing that to you it's even more unfathomable so of course Lear is going to be content to play this little game who loves me the most you know and and of course Regan and Goneril are going to play right into it and of yeah. course Cordelia is going to object and be honest and and of course that's this this is going to be the end result it's just it's it's classic dramatic irony that the audience knows from the very beginning this fantastic opening of king lear which is just so powerful unlike anything else in in most of shakespeare most of literature basically everything set out in the first (laughs) right it's this fantastic conflict that's set up right from the beginning and you know exactly how it's going to end and of course lear does get his redemption when he reconciles with cordelia but then he and both he and cordelia die so it's not it's not actually a happy ending at all yeah but there's some sort of redemption and the redemption comes through forgiveness from his daughter and that is something that is not you know hamlet doesn't get forgiveness from his mother no. or ophelia uh othello doesn't get forgiveness from desdemona, desdemona. No. Uh, macbeth doesn't get forgiveness from anyone i mean the the women who are wronged rarely get that power at the end to bestow forgiveness and this is what cordelia is given yeah. in a way um not that she ever asked for it she's she's this like essentially unproblematic character throughout the entire play she's the most unproblematic um and she gets the short shrift but but she does have this incredible power to bestow forgiveness and um and love and grace on her father before they both die yeah which is not something that no the rest of the plays really don't have that especially as a daughter role um, yeah, and I think that's and it's, it's important. This yeah. this is so Lear is sixteen oh five, sixteen oh six, something like that, and and it leads into these later problem plays where the daughters are far more complex yeah. and um and get that happy ending. So it's it's kind of a nice progression when you look at you know a daughter like Juliet and then a daughter like Cordelia and then a daughter like Imogen yeah. or Miranda who who are you know they, it's a nice arc for, yeah. for daughters. Yeah, I mean really. The whole trio of daughters in, in Lear, it's almost like they get kind of combined into the, the these are these are more fully formed women because the, the other ones, I mean, like you said, Cordelia is so unproblematic. She's yeah. basically not even really a character. She's just like right. a force of good. Yeah. When she's on stage, good things are going to happen. Right. And when Regan and Goner are all on stage, bad things are going to happen. Like, right. That's, they're stereotypes. They're, they're stock characters. Yeah. They're very stock characters. Yeah. Right. And the future ones are, are much more dynamic than that. Yeah. yeah. Even if they're not truly evil like Regan and Goneril are, yeah. they have they have their own interests. Their, their I think that's exactly. the positive characteristics of Regan and Goneril yeah. are that they know what they want and they don't have any problem going and getting them. Whereas the positive characteristics of Cordelia are her goodness and grace. So those are what get combined yeah. into Imogen and yeah, Miranda. Exactly. Double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cold and bubble. I guess the last category is the the magical women. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, we talked in the, in our intro episode about the the superstitious and magical beliefs of of Elizabethan society. Um so when you have characters like witches or fairies, it's it's kind of um I think all other rules go out the window. The rules of femininity, the rules of womanhood go out the window. You have, you know, the three witches in Macbeth who are not given names they're just yeah. 
which one, two, and yeah. three, um, they speak in unison yeah. or when they don't, they're speaking prophecy. It's not, um, there's nothing really in, that individuates them. Yeah. There's no character there. Again, mm-hmm. They're kind of a force of nature. Same with uh, Titania to yeah. a certain extent. I mean, a little bit more. She's, she has motivations and stuff. Yeah. It's not just a and mystical. And she and Oberon have, like they're, they're, the whole argument is what sets the play in yeah, motion. I mean, yeah. if it if it wasn't for them arguing over over things, bottom would never have been turned into an ass, and yeah. we wouldn't have had you know all these mixed yeah, up mixed love, up, yeah, love triangle, triangles, quadra- quadrangles yeah. <laughs> in the woods that yeah, night for these yeah. Greek youngsters. So, um, but but it is it the way they're presented usually is as forces of nature. They yeah. are they are very much just uh, you know they're things beyond. Uh, human desires they they have you know i mean they titania is dumbed down into you know a human problem right for the sake of the audience but the way she's always shown is you know as a, a fairy figure or something like yeah. that um a similar one is ariel uh who may may not be a woman yeah ariel is an interesting one that's the the um the sprite, sprite. figure from the tempest who yeah. is i i was i can't remember where i read this but it seems to me that um most if not well, the, the majority of the time that char- that this character was portrayed, it was portrayed by a woman. Mm. Um, but there is no it, it's, there, it's the gender the is all, not yeah. revealed at any point in the play. Um, and maybe like for me, Ariel is the Little Mermaid. That's what yeah, I'm going obviously. for. So so and I, I just imagine <laughs> that the name Ariel came down through the ages as a female <laughs> name. So maybe I'm projecting backwards. But I do remember reading that somewhere that that most of the portrayals of Ariel were done by women after the point where women were able to yeah. to be on stage. So um, so I'm counting her as I'm counting Ariel as a as a female Magi- magical character, character but yeah. it could go either way. And I think that in itself is interesting that this magical character doesn't really have a specified gender not to suggest that Shakespeare was so woke <laughs> that he was creating non-binary no. characters in the in well, the but 1610s. Perhaps the sprites did have, you know, in the folklore of the time, perhaps that was something that, yeah. oh, well, they're not, not they're neither boy nor girl, you right. know, or something like that. It could have been something that he was picking up and playing with. Sure. But, um, yeah, it is interesting that even to this day, it's, it's not specified and it is open to uh, different interpretations. Um, Sycorax is another one from the Tempest, yeah, Tempest who is yeah. um, Caliban's mother, not portrayed, just mentioned on stage. Mentioned but on but you can't imagine that a character like Caliban is going to spring forth from the womb yeah, of a good the, character. Yeah. So it's a magical character who has evil intent. Yeah. Or, and, or and at least Prospero is possibly uh, Caliban's father. So yeah. there's there's a whole mix, messy situation mm-hmm. there about where did Sycorax come from on this deserted island? Was she magical? Was she a sprite similar to Ariel who Prospero yeah. impregnated like is it it's very very confusing as to what any of this means and and th- so these these fairy characters which characters are um they're not characters that the humans should trust I think that's what's important the mm-hmm. fact that I can't think aside from Prospero who is a magician a male magician yeah there aren't any male figures who have magical abilities. Oh, and Oberon, I guess. Yeah, Titania's sure, yeah. Yeah, husband. Course, yeah. Um, but there aren't very many characters who are who are who are male and magical. They're Puck, female and magical. Uh, yeah, Midsummer yeah, Nights. Mids- yeah, okay. Kind of, so yeah. I'm wrong, but I mean, this is this is um, there. There's something I don't know what, but that these these magical characters are female mm-hmm. for the most part for the most part yeah is i don't know i i kind of i kind of want to say it's like attributing 
female qualities to the thing that you don't understand exactly. is kind of funny to me. It's like saying, yes. like, I don't know why I'm in love with you. So it must be some kind There's of feminine, feminine yeah, magic that's, that's making you, yeah. um, making, you know, there's something dropped into my eyes and that's what's making me <laughs> fall in love with you. And it was a woman who did it to me yeah. or a female sprite. Si- yeah, figure, yeah. Or was a female witch on the moor who, you well, know, like. And, and the idea of witches, I think, is important in the time period too because they were burning witches. Right, I mean, yes. This was literally a thing that was very prevalent in the culture of the time is if you don't understand it, she's a witch, burn her. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the Monty Python I, sketch I, all over again. King James famously wrote a book that yeah. explained how to tell who were witches and and who weren't. Yes. So I mean, this you're absolutely right. Yeah. So so and they were most of the time they were women. So it was just it was just a way to to dismiss the thing you didn't understand or yeah. to dismiss the problematic women of the time. Exactly. To and say that they were witches. Exactly, and that's what makes uh, again the uh, Imogen and and Miranda characters interesting is mm-hmm. that they're. Um, well, especially Miranda, I would say, is because she's the daughter of a magician. Right. Um, you know, the 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 threat was always there that she should be burned as a witch. I mean, right. she was literally, you know, a, the, like, the, yeah, the daughter the, of, a, of a wizard, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, that makes her a witch kind of thing. But it's it's treated differently in, in, in that end. Uh, whereas a lot of the other, I mean, like the witches in Macbeth are just prophecies and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... The Tempest is a really interesting play for that because mm-hmm. it does use magic. And, and it's explicit so many... about magic. Exactly. And it's magic that's happening. Um, like human characters. Yeah. It's not It's not some, some weird witchy people who appear out of the mist and they're not sprites living in a forest. Yeah. They're actual people who have magical abilities. Yeah. Yeah, which is and just a different. It's a change, and it yeah. it is. But they're treated as humans, mm-hmm. which is interesting because the the witches and the other ones are very much similar to your explanation of the, the things that you don't understand. Yeah. And actually, one of the best ones of that is Cassandra, right? Uh, from Troyes and Cresta, yeah. as you know, the soothsayer. You know, the the Cassandra. <laughs> she, you know, yeah, she's she's a stock character now. Yeah, in, exactly. in, in our culture because she's so famous for being right. a seer. But, yeah, yeah, being predicting everything, and then no one listens to her. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, again, a commentary, but nobody, uh, it doesn't, Troyes and Cressa is not aware, uh, it's not poking fun at the fact that everybody should be listening to Cassandra. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, this crazy bitch. Like, yeah. it, it, it writes her off again, yeah. uh, as they did in Troy, and yes. as they have <laughs> down through the ages, right? And so she's another example of, of this character who, uh, of this woman who's just ignored because nobody understands her. Which is contrasted with the Oracle of Delphi in The Winter's Tale, mm, yeah, who comes in and exonerates Hermione at the end. There you go. But um, but that's not something that, like, it's it's only, like, it's, it's, it is interesting that, that you have certain, certain types of magic or, 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 and, and Cassandra may not be magic, they, that might be something else. Yeah. But it's but unexplainable. It's, yeah, it's yeah. dismissed. It's like Mercutio and the Queen Mab thing in mm-hmm. in um, in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet, where it's like your dreams are the, are well. First of all, dreams, which Cassandra might be brushed off because these are nothing more than dreams, yeah. right? But dreams are the product of an idle mind, or the children of an idle mind is is the quote. Um, and Queen Mab just delivers them to you. Yeah. They're just something that, and Queen Mab herself is a m- magical character, I suppose, that yeah. you could look at. But, um, but these are things to be dismissed. These are things to be, um, 
to be brushed off because they're not in the here and now, which which makes Prospero and Miranda that much more notable. And then, of course, there's like Hermione herself, who maybe magically becomes human from her statue. Yeah. A little a little Pygmalion uh, thing going on there. But um, but, you know, just just to in the interest of thoroughness. You know, we mentioned her earlier. She might fit into a magical character. She might not, but um, but that's yeah interesting in and of herself. Yeah. Once more into the breach, dear friends. Once more, I'll close the wall up with our English dead. So, our question this week, or this episode, I should say: Does Shakespeare treat women in his plays as thoughtful, deep characters, like he does with many of his male characters? Uh, I will be taking the affirmative case, and Lindsay will be arguing against this very clear fact. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'll start us off. Um, uh, I have to say that, yes, um, of course he does, because we just spent an hour talking about how detailed <laughs> these women are. But, I mean, you said it yourself in the intro. These women are are, are really unforgettable in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they There's so many of them. They have so many different facets to them, to their characters and to their um to their voices within the play that uh, I don't think you can write that much about the women, even if they are only 10% or 15% or whatever it was you, you mentioned at the start, uh, the characters that are there are just quite dynamic at the end of the day, especially someone like I love Portia. I'll always come back to Portia mm-hmm. because she's, she's fit in the role and then she'll come out and go against it and she can be a man and she can be the best man. Uh, and then she can go back to being a woman right away. And I don't think, you can write a character like that without believing that it's possible uh, and that women are actually capable of this. Um, I mean, perhaps perhaps he was just giving the audience what he wanted, what they wanted. I, I could grant that. But um, I, I think, uh, especially as we went through the timeline even now as we were talking, uh, you can really see that um, he was willing to give women... Uh, not necessarily the same voice as the men or the same roles as the men, but he's willing to imagine them in those same roles and having a similar uh, powerful voice. And it's kind of a shame that I, I don't know the, the the romances as well as you do, like Cymbeline and Winter's Tale, but it sounds like those are really interesting women too, because uh, I don't think I've ever read those ones. But um, even, even in the... Because uh, I think those are really interesting women, uh, but even in the ones that we did talk about and that I do know really well... Um, I think there's a certain level of rationality to the women in in the plays. Even the ones who get really raw deals like Ophelia or Desdemona, um, they were fulfilling the roles that were expected of them. And I think that's a really interesting uh, expression of what women were capable of. They were doing as well as they could and they were doing it in a rational way to fill their roles and they were taught that society would protect them and help them uh, and they would be rewarded for being good people in this way. Um, the fact that they all got killed and so on is is shitty, but uh, that happens to every that happens today even. So uh, I think those women are still fully functioning characters. I think, uh, and I think they're quite good. Lindsay, what do you what do you have to say? Well, I don't disagree wholly with everything that you said. Yes, I win. But <laughs> I think that that it's. I mean, just the fact that that. In going through our podcast and and structuring this episode, we we were able to fit these women into such clearly defined categories 
means that they were still, they were maybe good examples of stereotypes, but they were stereotypes nonetheless. We still had maids, we still had uh, wives, we still had mothers, and, and these women could only act for the most part, could only act so much within the roles that they had been assigned or that they'd fallen into. So um, even even characters like Lady Macbeth, who um, does have that agency to dictate her own future, she's still quite badly condemned for doing so. And so it doesn't it doesn't mean that she's not deep and thoughtful, but I mean the women the women in Shakespeare's plays don't get to express their thoughts and emotions the way that the men do. So I think that that even if even if we can read into their actions and say that that represents depth and emotion and um, thoughtfulness, they don't get the chance to speak for themselves the way that Hamlet does or the way that uh, Lear does. They they kind of, we kind of have to read into it through the things that they do. And there's no real proof mm. present in, in the plays. Mm. Like, for example, Hamlet. Hamlet gets this big, beautiful to be or not to be speech where he questions his own existence and the existence of, of, man and and sorrow and all of these things that come up from it from a depth of this deep wellspring of grief that he's been pitched into because of his father's murder um we just get ophelia bouncing around talking about flowers and then drowning herself in the river we don't get her expressing the depth of her sorrow yeah we can infer that she's had a depth of sorrow and people talk about it afterwards that, oh, she was so distraught, but she never gets to say it herself. And I think that that is important. I don't I don't know that Shakespeare was shying away from it because he didn't know how to write women's speech. I, I don't doubt that he could have done justice to a female character. And there are examples of it. Tamora gets to speak um, powerful things. Juliet. Juliet does too, Cleopatra. but but yes, but I think I'll, <laughs> but I think you get it. It's not. They're not things that that complicate the character the way that the male speeches yeah. get to do to the male characters. Sure. And and for the most part, these women are um, they're still acted upon, and they're still um, people talking around them. I mean, you brought up Julia who famously doesn't get a, a single word in at the end of the play, yeah. the two gentlemen of Verona, <laughs> even though she's a strong character, she's, she's still silent. Yeah. And I think that is the most important thing that comes out of this is that you can't be deep and thoughtful if we don't hear your voice. And for a lot of these female characters, we don't get to hear their voice as much, or we don't get a sense of who they are from the things that they say. It's more the things that we see them do. And then it's open to interpretation. And that's why we have, that's why you're able to read into this feminism or yeah. um, whatever, because Shakespeare certainly didn't seek out to, you know, votes for women was not on his mind, but you could read into these characters and you can set them in a time that 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 makes that possible because of the way that they act, not necessarily because of the way that they speak. And I think that's an important distinction. There are things that will disprove what I'm saying, but I think for the most part, when you yeah, think of the deep, of yeah. the deep, um, thoughtful soliloquies and the speech and the the depth of emotion, they all almost all belong to men. And and. As you were saying that, I, I was realizing that there are no 
there are no female protagonists that really drive the plot in uh really any of shakespeare's plays i mean there's none no there's i'm trying to think of any of the ones we've talked about i mean beatrice a little bit to an extent because lady macbeth a little bit if you look at her as a protagonist which it's hard to do but exactly there's 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 no you know the tragical history of a princess like there, yeah. there's nothing like that there's no. it's always romeo and juliet anthony and cleopatra and even when you do have a, a strong female character from history like joan of arc yeah she she's her character <laughs> changes a lot throughout henry the fourth as well like she's not yeah. really set as Consistent. a yeah which is problematic and we'll get to that when we talk about the play but yeah but yeah i mean there's there's really nothing there's no there's no example of a woman being the central character in a play no in the way there is in any of the uh, any of the place the the man the men are always central i mean i think miranda's getting coming around to it in a Mm -hmm. sense because again like we mentioned she was the central driving force of Mm -hmm. a lot of what was happening prospero is the main character there's no dancing around that uh you know and i think that's that is kind of a little disheartening you just you just broke my heart well and but i mean it's not to say that shakespeare was not capable of doing this or that there aren't the seeds are there i think that, yeah, that there, shakespeare there leads of... to afro ben and afro ben leads to, to charlotte bronte and jane austen who yeah. absolutely write women who change the, the their own fate holy yeah. the stories are from their point of view and you don't get that progression if you don't have a character like um viola or yeah. portia or miranda so i mean it's not like this is a, a lost cause but i just i just don't see the depth of character there that i do for the men yeah okay i'll give you that did i win this round no you lose yeah you won <laughs> yes why then the world's mine oyster which i with sword will open so that's our episode i guess we're uh we're at the end of of our conversation this was a bit of a a long haul if you're yeah. sticking with us to the end thanks very much for listening yeah. um so our next play that we're going to be discussing is the taming of the, the shrew, taming of the shrew um which we'll get into a lot of the issues that we kind of discussed here but a little bit more in depth relating just to that play and not necessarily to the rest of the plays around it um yeah anything else to say anything no, to add I've, to that Aiden? i've uh, this has been a good discussion thank you very much Lindsay. oh thank you very much as a much. woman i feel like i should give you the last <laughs> I don't have any last words. <laughs> I really bungled this, didn't I? I didn't come up with a good sign-off. <sighs> you can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit. <laughs>